Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel, Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut case. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had markets inside a bony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Welcome back. To the What Is Happening podcast. Um, been a while. As I said, it had been a while from the last episode also. Um, I'm kind of getting a bit lazy with these, not going to lie. It is summer. I've got more sh- stuff to be doing. I've a lot of stuff to be catching up with. I haven't sat in the house for the last two years. Um, so, yeah, I I have no apology for the not sending these out regularly enough. Um, I don't get enough listens to really care uh no i'm only joking um sorry they haven't been as regular i'll try and get them more regular i said that last time i'll not make any promises i can only try um so yeah the start of this was a very intense i suppose question and answer session should you say um and that's what this episode is going to be this episode is a q a session um if you remember a couple of weeks back i put a thing up my instagram page asking anyone if they had any questions to ask me uh and I got a good few responses and just then never got around to doing the episode. So I've had a free time. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. Um, hopefully it's not going to be as intense as Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson there. But you never know. Um, so the first one was quite successful of these. So I thought, you know, I'll just do another one. Um, and I got quite f- quite a few responses, more than last time. So we'll see how it goes. Um, so the very first question asked to me um, is, I'm not going to give out names or anything because, you know, Gives away my fan boys and girls. But anyway, favourite sport and why? The very first question on the list. So, this is a tough one. I mean, I have said many times before to many people that will ask me, when people ask me what's your favourite sport, what sport do you like the most, it usually comes down to two distinct fields. What do I enjoy watching and what do I enjoy playing? They're two very different things. In terms of watching, what sports do you enjoy watching the most? I love watching football, like most young adults adult males in particular in europe um i love watching football with a great passion for watching football i love you know supporting you know my favorite team which sounds like i'm writing an essay in p3 but i love doing that um i love the passion behind it you know i love the the thrills the ups and downs you know the euros are currently on at the minute i'm loving watching the euros um it's brilliant having said that I don't like playing football. At least not 11 aside. I don't mind 5 aside football. Um, but 11 aside football just never did it for me. A lot of it was to do with I wasn't good enough and also I just didn't like football culture. So that's out of the de- that's out of the debate for my favorite. Probably my favorite to watch but way way down the list in terms of favorite to play. Then we move on to basketball, which I love to watch. Big Lakers fan if anybody knows me. Love the high intensity, the end-to-end action of it. Um, 
you know, I just think it's a fantastic sport and it's one of the few American sports that I actually enjoy watching because it's not incredibly slow like the rest of them. Um, Like, love playing it. Up there with the best sports in terms of playing with, a, with an absolute, you know, firm belief that basketball is an incredible sport to play. It's great exercise because it's indoors, obviously, as well. And it's in the end. You can work on a great sweat. And anybody can just play basketball, you know, get your mates down. It's fantastic. So it's definitely up there. However, personally, um, also I love Formula One. Uh, give a good mention to Formula One, which is probably, as I was growing up, my kind of niche sport. Um, the kind of thing that I was into that a lot of other people weren't really into. Um, and everybody would know from this podcast, you would think Formula One would be my favourite sport because, you know, I love watching Formula One. There's probably no sport I enjoy watching more than Formula One. Um, and there's no sport I probably know more about than formula one itself you know i followed formula one since i was five or six growing up um every sunday you know i used to get up at six in the mornings for the races and um, when they're in japan china and stuff like that i love formula one and it would definitely be my favorite sport to watch however i can't play it i can't compete in formula one i never had the money and it's not like you can just go down to your local cycle like like you go down to your local you know cycling track or your local tennis court and just pick up a racket and start hitting balls you can't just stroll down to nuts corner and hop in a formula one car um, and even if you want to do go-kart and it's incredibly expensive and not the type of thing that you can just go and do whenever you want so it's out of the debate for best sport because in my opinion to be the best sport has to be the one that you enjoy playing the most and enjoy watching in that regard it would be golf um i love watching golf wouldn't be my favorite to watch it would, however, be my favourite to play um, without a shadow of a doubt. It's just the intricacies of golf, the fact that, you know, it's as much a mental game as a physical game. You play yourself, you hit good shots, you get bad lies, it's unfair, it's cruel. And it's just like life, really. Um, you know, you hit a perfect shot, gets a bad bounce, you walk off with a double bogey. You hit a, a shit shot, you know, thin it rolls up to the front of the green. And that's kind of like life, you know. Not everything you do in life is going to turn out the way you think it should or the way you expect it should. But it's all about how you play the next, how you take the next shot, how you perform, you know, after you get the shit break or how you react to getting a good break after a shit shot. And life's the same, you know. Something bad happens to you in life good sense of character, a good sign of character is how you bounce back from that. Um, and that's one of the key things in golf is bounce back ability. Um, it's this idea that after you get a bogey or hit a bad shot, how you bounce back in the next hole. And the best players have great bounce back ability. Um, and it's the same in life. The best characters in life have great bounce back ability. Um, so yeah, I'd say golf. In terms of playing, yeah, 100%. You just go down, golf course, away you go, no real hassle there. Although it can't, people can argue it's a bit expensive. Then we move on, okay, because I'm conscious of how many questions I have. We move on from that to favourite athlete. In my chosen sport, my favourite sport in golf is without a shadow of a doubt, Tiger Woods. Um, Tiger Woods, in my personal opinion, is the most dominant athlete of all time. Tiger Woods in his prime in golf when he burst onto the scene in 1997 at the Masters, where he won by like 11 shots. Until probably about 2008, 9. 
um, when he lost when he won that playoff sorry against Rocco Media in the US Open at Torrey Pines, which coincidentally is where it was this year, um, where he basically won after an eighteen hole playoff after after they were tied on Sunday, and he basically played the whole tournament with a torn ACL, um, and that basically after that ruined him because um, he suffered from injuries ever since. But between that period, Tiger Woods was the most dominant athlete in the face of the earth. There was at one point during that time where the gap in the like world rankings between him and second place was greater than the gap between second and like a thousand or two thousand or something like that. Some absolutely crazy statistic. Um and you know, it's things like that really put it into perspective of how dominant Tiger Woods is. And there was a very good Roy McElroy was asked a couple of weeks ago when Phil Mickelson, who became the oldest player to win a major at fifty, nearly fifty one was asked, what do you remember of Phil Mickelson growing up? And McElroy's response was, not a lot. Like, he grew up in Tiger's era. It was Tiger. Everybody wanted to be Tiger. Everybody wanted to copy Tiger. And for Phil Mickelson, one of the greatest, maybe even top five players of all time, for Rory McElroy to say that about him because of how dominant Tiger Woods was, you know, it just goes to show you the level of dominance that he had. Particularly also, as a small note, is the game. Like, the literal licensed PGA Tour game was called Tiger Woods PGA Tour. Could you imagine FIFA being called Cristiano Ronaldo football or Lionel Messi football? No, you couldn't. Like, as dominant as those players are, you could never imagine it being called that. Whereas the golf, that was just bog standard. And for years growing up, the only players people knew if you didn't actually play golf or knew anything about golf was Tiger Woods. Everybody knew Tiger Woods. It wasn't just that oh, a lot of people knew Tiger Woods. Every person I, you would meet knew who Tiger Woods was. Knew him to see. Saw that Nike brand. Saw him with the Nike brand. You know, he's most probably one of the most recognizable people in, in history. Um, let alone in, in sport or in golf. So he would be up there. In terms of my favorite athlete of all time, outside of the sport I love, would be Fernando Alonso. Growing up, love Formula 1. You've probably heard me talk about him before. 2005-06, that... <laughs> yellow and blue Renault, you know, the long sort of mullet type haircut he had, youngest world champion at the time, youngest double world champion, Schumacher won five world champions in the bounce, championships in the bounce, and he was a young sort of talent to come in and win back-to-back titles at the end of the Schumacher era to, to dethrone him essentially, which is kind of like what Verstappen is trying to do this year, and that was the same thing 10, 15 years ago, um, so he would be my favourite, loved him growing up, loved him, you know, when he was at Ferrari days, you know, he was the reason I got up at six in the morning for races, so that would kind of be, you know, the key answer to that question. Then we move on to the next question, opinions and optimism. This is a great question, and for those who know me, and I'll kind of group it in with another question after, for those who know me, I'm kind of a miserable bastard. Um, I tend to always see the negative in things rather than the positive. I'm a pessimist. That's literally what I am. I can't help myself. I try not to be. But that is what I am. I'm a pessimist. I'm glass half empty kind of guy. And one thing I do, don't get me wrong, I know I should be more positive and positive thinking and positive mental attitude, you know, PMA, all this, is fantastic. It really is. It helps with a lot of things. It helps you in life. It motivates you. You know, it does all this. And I do have moments, you know, I do try and have that positive mental attitude and adapt that. But my problem arises with, and I might do another separate episode on this at some point in the future, is toxic positivity. Um, and this kind of idea 
that, you know, basically, you know, toxic masculinity is just this idea that, you know, everything's positive. You have to be positive about everything. You have to be happy about everything all the time. Life is wonderful. Life's fantastic. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff, right? And I understand, you know, it works for a lot of people. Of course it does. And if you want to be, if you want to adopt that mantra, then feel free. You know, I'm not going to stand here and stop you. You know, do whatever makes you happy. If you enjoy sitting in the house with the curtains drawn in your own, thinking about why you hate yourself, if that makes you weirdly happy, which is pretty impossible, but if that does make you happy, then go ahead and do it. But for me, I just can't... Like, to me, life has its ups and downs, right? But there are moments of positive... There are positive flurries and all sort of instances and stuff. However, that is the key. There are ups and downs, and everybody talks about life having ups and downs, being like a roller coaster. And when you experience those downs, yes, it's good to be positive. Yes, it's good to uplift yourself afterwards and be like, right, we've had an upset. How we bounce back? How we move on? Kind of like that bounce back, back ability in golf. But there also comes a moment when you have to acknowledge the shitness, to put it grammatically perfect, of the situation you're in. And you need to accept that and you need to be angry and upset. And as Marcus Aurelius said, you know, only yourself, only you can make yourself angry. That's true, but be angry. Be angry at certain moments. It's good to be angry at certain things. If someone fucks me off or angers me or does something to annoy me, I have every right to be angry towards them. I have every right to show them that I'm angry. I have every right to express my anger, my, you know, disgust for something, my irritation at something. You know, I have every right to express those emotions. And I hate people who are like, oh, well, you can't express those emotions. I'll give you a perfect, and I, you know, it's a perfect example. If I, sometimes people just need someone to vent to. And if something annoys me, me holding it in and building it up just because it gets on someone else's nerves is no benefit to anybody. Well, it's benefit to other people, but not to myself. And what do people say these days is always look after yourself. So by looking after myself, sometimes I like getting angry. Sometimes I like getting angry and shouting about the place and whatever. And that's fine. It's a release of energy. It's a release of tension. It's required. I can't be happy. I can't put on a happy face all the time because that's just not me. And if that's not you, don't just put it on and don't be positive. And, you know, people say, oh, life is fantastic. Life is this. Life is that. Life is not one fantastic experience because if it was you would never be upset or angry everything would just be perfect it's like being in heaven and it's not that's not life that's if heaven even exists but that's a different topic but that's not life and you got to accept that and sometimes you got to be angry and sometimes you just have days we and you know that's fine accepting the reality of your existence the reality of your existence is that you are a minuscule creature on a rock floating through space in the middle of nowhere and you're born you have this imagined reality where you experience all sorts of emotions relationships etc and then you die and that's it nobody asked to be born nobody asks to die nobody asked to be a human no one asked to be born on earth at the specific time in the specific situation that they're in but that's what happened. Why? We have no idea. What happens after? No idea. What happened before? No idea. That's kind of shit. But there are positives within it. Experience and appreciate both. Don't just go one way or the other. 
And it's the same with negativity. Don't just be negative all the time about everything because that defeats the purpose. You let life itself and you let the struggle win. It's the same as being on a golf course. Easier said than done, of course, but you hit one bad shot in a golf course, you get down, you let it defeat you, you have an awful rest of the round because you don't concentrate, you don't practice. Because you think, oh, I'm shit, I'm always going to be shit. And you never get any better. Same with life. Something bad happens, you stay down. It's not going to get you anywhere. But likewise, being positive about everything is not going to get you anywhere either. You need a bit of both. Like salt and pepper. Um, you can't go without either. Uh, some, although I just seem to prefer salt um, a lot of the time more than pepper. But, you know, each to their own. A very interesting question. Now, if someone is sexually attracted to children, right, and they know it is wrong but never act in their urges, are they a bad person? I've heard this asked before at different situations. I've seen it asked before. I've actually seen a YouTube video on a guy who is like this. So basically what's being asked here is if you have pedophile tendencies or pedophilic tendencies, i.e. you are sexually attracted to children, but you know they're wrong and don't act on them, are you a bad person? My tendency here would to say would be to say no. And it's kind of in the same way as, you know, now we're talking about no acting upon them whatsoever, I assume. So that doesn't, like, so you don't go home and look at images of children and masturbate, anything like that. And the second you have, you look at a child and have an urge, you don't even think about it at all. You literally don't think about the urge to even do anything. You just instantly black it out and switch to something else. It's like the second you look at a child and feel that sexual tension come on, you instantly switch to something else. That's what I assume. So there's no kind of sexual... No one ever goes towards anything like that. I I would say no. And I'll give you another example. So, so for example, let's say I have a tendency to... I don't know. Let's say on a night on nights out, when I go out on a night out, I have a tendency to want to fight everybody. When I've drinking me, I want to fight everyone. And someone bumps into me and I really want to fight them, but I hold myself back. I go, no, I count to three, no, no, let it pass, let it pass, don't I don't start a fight. People will be like, well done, mate, you didn't start a fight tonight. Congratulations, you're getting better controlling your emotions. Same with if, you know, someone works in retail and they're getting shouted at by some Karen in the queue, your natural reaction might be to turn around and tell them to fuck off and do one. You can't do that. You hold that back. People say, oh, I don't know how you work that job. That's fantastic how you do that. You know, congratulations. Same as if, let's say a nurse um, or a doctor, let's say they have really, really, I remember Martin Doc Martin, which was on TV years ago, he had real phobia of blood, but he became a doctor anyway, and he saved, saved lives, and he fought through that phobia of blood to save people and cure people, fight against his urges not to go near the blood. And it's kind of the same thing here. You know, this guy, or whoever, fem- could be male, female, it doesn't really matter, has an, ur- has an urge or a tendency to be attracted to children. They know that it's a horrendous urge to have, which is a good thing to know. Um... You know, we would like to think that everybody knew that. So that's not really the key bit here. The key bit is, like, for example, I'm seeing the night out. If I go on a night out, I know I shouldn't punch people in the face when I'm drunk. That's all well and good, knowing 
what you should or shouldn't do is all well and good. It's then being able to put that into action. So knowing you shouldn't, knowing you shouldn't act in urges towards children, obviously, is just sort of basic knowledge. But being able to control those urges is another key step. Now I'm not saying we should praise this individual. Um, I'm not saying that we should, you know, praise them in the same way as we praise somebody for, you know, jumping into a fire to save someone's life, going against their survival instincts. I'm not saying that, but I'm simply saying it doesn't make them a bad person. Um, makes them a person with some serious fucked up mental issues, but it doesn't make them a bad person. Can't they can't be a bad? You can't say someone is bad. When something out of when they control something that is out of their control, they know something is wrong and they control it when it's out of their control. You know, nobody would. You know, I can't go back to this discussion. Nobody, surely, surely, nobody willingly wants to be attracted to children. Surely, that seems kind of a logical conclusion to draw. If that's the case, and you are attracted to children simply by birth basically um for want of a better word knowing that that's wrong and doing everything in your power to prevent acting in those urges in the slightest can't make you a bad person surely surely that would make no sense whatsoever you couldn't be a bad person um not to me anyway to me what's important is action to other individuals it might be you know might be the mindset makes someone a bad person who knows um you know so but to me personally no you can't be a bad person i just i couldn't fathom a you know a logical argument to how you could actually say someone who does that is a bad person at all um you might still want to keep them away from your kids of course um that makes perfect sense but that doesn't make them a bad person um of course obviously if they immediately act on it then yes they've let go of their urges yeah 100 percent um bad person obviously um but yeah very interesting question most or sorry who dead or alive would i most want to have on the podcast and obviously why uh such a good question there's so many possible answers to that um if you had to pick one one person in history personally I would have to pick one one of the great thinkers probably your likes of you know Aristotle, Plato, Socrates Democritus Newton Nietzsche Brian Cox, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think Bill Nye would be very interesting to have on, Carl Sagan, um, some great artists, you know, the likes of Stanley Kubrick, Van Gogh, Da Vinci, um, individuals like that are fantastic individuals we'd love to have on a podcast. You know, Zarnik, I... I have a weird affinity towards Tsar Nicholas II. 
and I'm so Tsar Nicholas II. We're going. We'll go with Tsar Nicholas II. So for anyone that doesn't know, Tsar Nicholas II was Tsar of Russia, the last king or Tsar, whatever you want to call it, of Russia, who basically. In fact, you know what? No, I'll change it, but it'll still be related. Rasputin. Now, for anyone that doesn't know, so there's a song, obviously, Rasputin, everybody's heard of it, Russia's Greatest Love Machine, but there is some truth in that. So, Tsar Nicholas II was the last king of Russia. Uh, at the beginning, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 18th century, I think his rule was 1892 to 1917. And basically, he oversaw Rus- the Russian Empire, basically collapse and crumble into the Soviet Union when the revolution occurred in 1917, led by the Bolsheviks, um, and Vladimir Lenin came to power. And basically, you know, he didn't want to be king. He grew up, didn't want to be king, never wanted to be king, didn't have the kind of leader tendencies, was more just a really, really nice, happy guy. And basically he had a kid. So Obviously, you know, one of the biggest issues back then was having a, a an heir, and especially in Russia, was having a male heir. And Tsar Nicholas II didn't have any male children until he had, I'm pretty sure, Alexei was his name. But Alexei was an hemophiliac, um, I believe is the term. Um, yes, Alexei Romanov, Tsarevich, yeah, hemophiliac. Um, so basically meant that, you know, he's really sick all the time. If he cut, his wounds didn't heal and he would bleed out, basically. So he had to be very careful with him. He was very frail. He couldn't really do a lot of, take part in a lot of exercise activity and stuff. And obviously this looked bad on the, the Empire for, you know, it was the only male heir that Tsar Nicholas had. And Rasputin basically was this sort of monk from Eastern Russia, from sort of Siberia, from the Eastern Russian Empire, who basically came to the imperial capital of St. Petersburg and won over the support of the Tsar's wife. And basically, he had this mad healing power. Somehow, he managed to, like, anytime Alexei got hurt or injured or got a cut or a bruise and it was bleeding, he sometimes, he somehow managed to magically heal this, his injuries and stop him bleeding. So he became very, very favourable with, very close to the Tsarina, um, and very close to the Tsar himself because of his abilities to basically look after his son and protect his son. And there are a lot of stories about Rasputin, a lot of shit that goes round about him. You know how you know he's just this mysterious monk from the east, randomly appeared out of nowhere. Was if you look him up, he is not a good-looking guy. Like he's terrifying-looking, but he was an absolute weapon to say the least like he took his pickings of any female he wanted um every female wanted him you know there were rumors that him and the, Z- the Zarina, the czar's wife were obviously you know doing it behind the czar's back and whatever way you want to put it and his ability to heal the czar's son is an incredible story that still nobody really knows the answer to and you know there's a picture if you look it up Rasputin's you can write look actually see Rasputin's dick. Um it's like preserved in a jar, I'm pretty sure. And it's huge like it is huge, like it's inhumanly huge. And uh the interesting thing 
about him is, you know, people always talked about him having superpowers, having all these mad sort of, I don't even know, like strength, you know, like healing abilities, mad sort of, you know, charm abilities over individuals. They went over them, you know, he somehow managed to work his way onto like the Imperial Council and work his way into the top end of the Imperial Court in Russia from being just this random guy who went around sleeping with all these women. And his death is a very interesting story that he basically went, now obviously there's conflicting reports about how he died, but basically he went to a party, should we say, banquet, Russian banquet in some castle or palace or whatever, and some prince, some prince in the royal family basically wanted to get rid of him because he believed he was putting a bad name on the Russian monarchy, the fact that he was up influencing decisions at the top and the council, people, the public obviously didn't like him, they were like, who's this guy, he just came out of nowhere, and they tried to kill him, so basically, um, his death is, his death is extraordinary, um, and how he died is just inc- crazy, so basically, um, they lured him um, to a palace, and once they lured him to the palace, um, there's a lot of things of what happened in the house, but basically, he was invited Rasputin um, to the palace, and shortly around sort of midnight, they ushered him into the basement, and the prince offered him sort of like tea, cakes, you know, stuff, and they were laced with cyanide. And basically, Rasputin initially refused to take them, but then he just began to eat these cakes, and he ate these cakes that were laced with cyanide, like completely laced with cyanide, and he was completely unaffected. Um, and then to, to wash the cakes down, he wanted he asked for wine. The wine also was laced with cyanide. He drank the wine, drank three glasses of it, still showed absolutely no sign of distress whatsoever. None. Um, and then at about half two, now you see, learned out at midnight, half two, two and a half hours later, of eating cakes and drinking wine, both laced with cyanide. He excused himself, or the prince excused himself, basically, to go upstairs. And he took a revolver and went back to the basement and basically shot Rasputin um, in the chest. And then they left. The princes left, basically, to go to Rasputin's apartment. And one of them wore Rasputin's coat to make it look like he'd kind of, you know, went home that night. Although he was lying, currently shot and laced with cyanide in his basement. They then returned to the palace to ensure that Rasputin was dead, right? And he leapt up and attacked the prince, right? He literally got up and attacked the prince. This is a guy who's been lying there for hours after being shot in point-blank range in the chest and eating cake and drinking wine laced with cyanide. This guy got up, attacked your man. And basically ran into the palace courtyard and was shot again in the snow. And then he eventually fell um, and died subsequently. Um, and there's other rumours, you know, that once he died, like that's kind of like a factual story, but there's, you know, other rumours of when he died that he came back to life. Or once they shot him in the courtyard, they tied him up and threw him under the ice uh, in the river. And that when they came back the next day to make sure he was dead, he had actually, he was still, he was in the river dead, but he'd actually undone the chains that he was tied with, um, but just couldn't get out of the, out of the ice in time. So, absolutely crazy. Um, 
I would love to sit down with that guy to feel his aura, to feel his presence, you know, to figure out what it was, to experience what it was that allowed him to win over one of the most strongest imperial, you know, monarchies in the face of the earth at the time. You know, what he was able to do and how he was able to influence Tsar, the Serena and stuff led to great change in the Russian Empire, great public opinion turn against the monarchy. You know, it was one of the key reasons for the fall of the Russian Empire, the rise of the USSR and one of the, you know, biggest events to happen in the last 120 years and subsequently greatly influenced everything that has happened since. I'd love to sit down and have a chat with him. Feel his presence see him in the flesh, see if he's all really to be what he was thought out to be. Ask him all sorts of things about about what he got up to in the Russian court, the inner workings of it, you know, everything that went on, his healing abilities, where he got them from, how he was able, you know, to charm everyone that he met. Be fascinating, absolutely fascinating um, person to meet, I would say. Definitely, definitely Rasputin. Um, or to give us food, Gregory, um, Rasputin. You know, um, so yeah, I would say him. Uh, next question. Any dream job, everything else to the side, what would it be? Hands down, astronaut. Without a shadow of a doubt, be an astronaut. One, you have to kind of be a fighter pilot um, or some sort of like pilot or engineer. And then you have to be kind of invited to become an astronaut at NASA or the European Space Agency. Very few people are ever astronauts. Chances uh, of it happening. Sorry, I'm yawning here. Very, very slim. But yeah, astronaut. Why? I mean, I've always had a great affinity towards the stars. Like a lot of people. Great affinity towards exploration. Space exploration. You know, sci-fi. What's out there? Are we alone? You know, I loved physics at school. I loved, you know, learning about how everything that happens on Earth is just how it happens here it's not a universal law for the whole universe you know time light gravity all sorts of stuff like that and i would love to witness be able to be an astronaut and witness that firsthand um there's a specific photo called Earthrise, where i can't remember what astronaut it was but one of the apollo missions took a photo of the earth rising from the moon and encapsulates the whole earth in that photo and I just look at that photo and think, imagine witnessing that in the flesh. You know, imagine actually, you know, we all on Earth, we all know that, you know, the Earth is round. We all know that we're a ball floating through space, as I said earlier. But to actually finally witness that firsthand, to see that in the flesh, must be one of the most incredible experiences one could ever imagine. Um, So I would love to be an astronaut to witness that. I'd love to be an astronaut, cutting-edge technology, push the boundaries basically of you know science and know that i'm doing that while i'm up there working um know that i'm doing something that's meaningful that's going to lead to whatever in the future know that i do a job that i'll be greatly remembered for especially if being from northern ireland to be the first ever northern irish astronaut um and yeah you know basically i couldn't think of a better like who as a kid doesn't want to be an astronaut who as a kid doesn't want to be in space who as a kid doesn't want to be out you know, exploring planets, fighting aliens, you know, obviously take the aliens out of it, like, but you never know, I suppose, but, um, you know, exploring Mars, going to see, imagine being that first person to step foot on Mars. Imagine that Neil Armstrong moment. He is forever etched in time 
forever etched in human history as one of the greatest pioneers this species will ever, ever witness. And he never knew that. He never knew he would achieve that, becoming an astronaut. That's the type of possibility you have out there. So yeah, astronaut, without a shadow of a doubt. Or if it was Russian, it would be cosmonaut, but, you know, same thing. Um, the next question, clear <coughs> my throat, is very probably the hardest to answer. But after thinking for a while, I think I've got an answer. So, biggest life lesson. My biggest life lesson, I think, at my ripe old age of twelve, is nothing comes to people unless they work for it. And I hate that saying. You know, what is for you won't go by you. Um, because that's just an excuse to sit around and do nothing and wait for things to just magically happen to you. That's just not what happens. Good things come to those who work like fuck for them. And that's just a fact of the matter. I've seen, you know, people throughout my time from school, you know, have goals and dreams and all sorts of things they wish to achieve. And they just never achieve them because they never work hard enough to do that. And we're all included, me included. And it's just... The, you know, it is the biggest fact in life is that if you don't work for something, you'll get nowhere. And, you know, you put the effort in, you'll get the effort, you'll get the results. And it's the same at uni, you know, the ones that put the work in at uni, at university, over the three years, got the best results. The ones who didn't, didn't. Now, don't get me wrong, some might have done better than expected or worse than expected. But the overall trend is that if you work hard, you'll get what you deserve. And that's the same with anything. Um... And I think it's the one thing if I had kids, which, you know, I don't, you know, I'll probably have at some point, is probably the main thing I would tell them is, apart from, you know, have good manners, is you want anything, you got to work for it. Nothing will be handed to you. You know, there's a good quote by Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan that states that life is hellish, brutal and short. And he's not wrong. And life is hellish and British and short. And if you stand there and let it punch you in the face, it'll knock you clean out. You have to fucking punch back. And you have to punch back harder and stronger and for longer. And only then will you see the results. Only then will you get that knockout. Only then will you get that belt to continue with a weird boxing reference. But yeah, it's the truth. Working hard, hard work. is. No, there's no better substitute than hard work. There is Well, there is no substitute for hard work, should I say. And that's just it. That is the biggest life lesson I have ever learned. And I've seen people with incredible talent waste it because they can't, they can't and don't want to work. Um, and don't get me wrong, there are bad beats in life. Of course there are. There are people who work hard and never get to where they want to be. But then people will be in a far better position than those who don't work at all. That's the point. That's what you got to look at. If you work hard, you will... 100% outperform in anything somebody who doesn't work at all. Now, you might get unlucky and not reach where you want to go. But that's just life. That's the way it is. But you'll never end up as bad as those who don't try at all. So that what I'd say my biggest life lesson is realising and coming to terms with that. Next question, when are you at your happiest? This kind of comes into the same sort of domain, I suppose, same sort of area in terms of working hard. I'm at my happiest probably near the end of the day when I've 
completed the day and I, I know I've worked hard throughout that day and I know I've achieved everything that I could possibly achieve in that day. And I sit down at the end of the night and I have a cup of tea and I watch some shit on the TV, basically, or play the PlayStation for an hour or two, knowing that I've achieved everything I possibly can throughout the day and knowing that there's more to come the next day. And it's the weird weirdest is when I'm revising, you know, when I revise and, you know, I set out, I maybe do like seven, six, seven hours revision a day, whatever. Once I've done that revision for the day and I know it's over, then that's when I'm at my happiest because it's like I've done what I need for the day. I have four or five hours here of just blissfulness, of just chilling out, relaxing with no guilt of, oh, I should be doing something else. And it was key, like over last lockdown when I was finishing uni, <laughs> you know, I was getting up and revising from 10 in the morning until about six at night. And then after that, until about two in the morning it was right what can we do can go on the playstation and just play playstation with my mates because you couldn't leave the house and that was when i was at my happiest because i knew that i'd done everything i needed to do for the day despite the fact we're in lockdown despite the fact i was doing revision over lockdown i couldn't go anywhere i was happy because i was relaxed i knew i'd done everything i could for the day i was proud of what i'd achieved i was happy with what i'd achieved i knew it was advancing my further goals i hadn't wasted the day and I could relax without that feeling of guilt. So that's when I'd say I'm at my happiest. Um, just immediately after working hard. It's not when I get the rewards for working hard. Um, weirdly. Weirdly it's really not. You know when I got accepted into Cardiff. You know. For university. For a master's in broadcast journalism. Which I'm going to in September. When I got the news that I was in. I wasn't that overly pleased because I kind of thought to myself you know I've done everything I can to get in and I'm proud of the fact that I've done everything to put myself in a good enough position I think to get in that's what made me proud the journey along the way the small achieving everything by the day and knowing that I was moving closer to that goal every single day it wasn't necessarily the reward at the end and that's what people say you know it's not the destination it's a journey and sometimes it is you know weirdly it is it was a journey getting there made me happy the progress the process of working my way up getting there once i got it it was like okay i got it fantastic i am thrilled to have this but it wasn't the same sort of happiness that i got from simply making sure that i'd done my revision that day or you know something along those lines so uh, yeah i would say that that's when i'm at my happiest um is there any more questions here biggest achievement um oh not academic let's see biggest achievement i have no idea i couldn't answer that question because i don't know and the key reason i don't know the answer to that is because of hindsight you never know what's coming in the future you never know what's some like something you've done now you don't know how that will affect you 10 15 20 years down the line do you know what i mean like my greatest achievement might have been going back to frankie and benny's in august last year instead of going to a different job because i might go into work tomorrow and meet stephen nolan and if i meet stephen nolan i might tell him about my podcast and tell him about me studying journalism and he might once i graduate offer me a job but i don't know that um until it all plays out so i can't answer that question i don't know i honestly don't i can't you can't answer that question until years down the line 
And once you look back and you have time to reflect on the situation and appreciate it, only then can you, only then can you really, you know, understand what it is. You know, what I would say one good thing, a good achievement, not an achievement, but something I'm proud of is travel and the amount of travel I've done because I think it's improved me as an individual. And I'm glad I done it when I did do it because the older you get, the harder it is to travel, the harder it is to see places. So I would probably say, not an achievement, but something I'm proud of is that I got my finger out basically when I was younger and organized trips and, you know, paid the money to go to and see these places. Um, So I would probably say that, but it's not an achievement. It's more just something to be proud of. And last question, most dangerous moment you've encountered? I haven't really encountered a lot of dangerous moments. I'm not really the mo- I'm not really a dangerous kind of guy. Um, I remember the first thing that comes to my mind was me and a couple of my friends. Coincidentally, a guy that asked this question was actually there with me. Done a done the tour to Mont Blanc, which I've talked about before. Probably it's like a lap of the sort of Mont Blanc massive, and. There was one point, one of the days, like basically it was in June, and it wasn't meant to be any snow, but they had a really bad winter and the snow, there was still quite a lot of snow cover. And we had to walk around this sort of cliff edge, which normally without the snow would have been, wouldn't have been too bad. Um, But because it was covered in snow, it was a lot steeper than it was normally. And it was slippy. So it would kind of remind you of, if you've ever climbed Sleep Donard, the final climb, once you get to the wall and you turn left and you climb up Sleep Donard, it's incredibly steep. That was kind of what the climb was like. Only we were walking around. Sleeved on it. So we weren't walking up. We were walking sideways along that steep bit. Which you know in. And it was probably about three times. As long and as high. Um, which without the snow would have been fine. Just as walking sideways and sleep on it would be fine. And even if you did fall without the snow. You wouldn't fall right to the bottom. You'd be fine. But because there was this sheet of snow, basically, it made it a lot steeper. There were no rocks to clip onto. You were literally using your hiking like sticks to like balance you and basically almost use as like ice axes to a degree. And if you did fall, you would have just skidded the whole way down off the cliff edge because there'd be nothing to stop you, and you'd you'd have fallen to your death. Simple as that. Um, and what was funny, we were like we weren't sure if that was the way to go, and some guy walked was walking across and he came to us and he had the full crampons on, he had the ice axe, he had the ropes and all and he went and the helmet and stuff and he's like, oh, you'll be fine guys, don't worry. Just put your crampons on, you'll be fine. We didn't have crampons. Um, but we had no other choice, we had to go that way. So I'd probably say that once up on that was the most dangerous moment I've ever felt. It's the only time I've probably ever felt, holy fuck, I could die here. It wasn't a, oh, there's a good chance I could die. It was just, you know, if I put a foot wrong here, I could die. Um, so that's probably the most dangerous moment I've encountered. That was very, 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 very scary. And really, we weren't, we weren't prepared for that at all. Um, we really weren't. Looking back on it with hindsight, once again, wonderful thing. You know, we should have got crampons. We, you know, I wouldn't take that risk again, but we did. And I'm still here to tell the shit tale about it, that about some sad individuals are still listening to this point. Thank you for being there, by the way. Um, but yeah, so that sort of concludes the episode thank you for everyone that's listened so right to the end um i hope give you a bit of interest hope some of them were interesting answers um 
and I hope you can relate to some of them yourselves. So yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um, and I'll try and get them more routine, more out. Try my best. I cannot promise anything. Incredibly difficult to do so, but yeah, at least enjoy this. Take what you are given, essentially. <laughs>